Okay, it's the middle of the night. I'm on the night shift in intensive care. I'm desperately trying not to fall asleep. Boy, I'd love to be asleep. My patient, who should be asleep, is wide awake and staring at me and won't go to sleep. What's going on? Let's find out. Sleep Deprivation in Critical Illness, Its Role in Physical and Psychological Recovery. This is a paper in the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine in 2012, published by Kamdar et al. And it focuses on some of the problems that our patients in critical care have with the sleep that they do or do not get in the critical care unit while they're under our care. Those of you that have been following the Critical Care podcast recently probably know that I've been focusing on things like intensive care acquired weakness, post-traumatic stress disorder and post-intensive care syndrome which is becoming more and more prevalent and talked about in the journals. So the paper starts by talking about what is normal sleep. Obviously to understand some of the problems our patients have we need to understand some of the uh, patterns of normal sleep and sleep's divided into two distinct phases non-rapid eye movement which is NREM and rapid eye movement or REM or REM and the normal human sleep period consists of four to six 90 to 100 minute periods in which NREM and REM alternate the non-rapid eye movement sleep is divided into three stages N1, N2 and N3 and N3 is the significant part um, that's part of the restorative process um, such as memory consolidation consolidation for example. Um, So this is what's commonly referred to as deep sleep. Rapid eye movement sleep occupies 20 to 25 percent of the total sleep period um, and it's characterized by muscle atonia uh, and low voltage high amplitude mixed frequency beta and sawtooth theta waves on the EEG and typically this is what is associated with dreaming and perceptual learning during the sleep. Circadian rhythms is the sleep-wake cycle and that's regulated by adenosine and melatonin. Adenosine is what keeps you awake, melatonin is what helps you then go off to sleep and the levels of these are consequently therefore very important during the um, sleep-wake cycle. Now during sleep the body undertakes quite a few changes Um, so let's start with thermoregulation. What happens here is that um, in normal subjects, the core body temperature peaks late in the day and declines just before you go to sleep. Um, But what happens when you're asleep is that there is a loss of the compensatory responses such as shivering and sweating and your body temperature actually reaches its lowest point during the latter part of sleep and then slowly starts to rise during just before you wake up. Your respiratory physiology, uh, obviously your voluntary control of respiration is lost and your hypoxic and hypercapnic ventilatory drives are therefore reduced. Um, And your respiration actually varies markedly during each stage of sleep. As your NREM sleep progresses, hypoventilation um, and an increase in arterial PCO2 levels occurs um, as a result of several factors which includes relaxation of upper respiratory muscles, increased airway resistance and a diminished central respiratory drive. And the minute ventilation also decreases across um, the latter stages of sleep. During the NREM sleep, the non-rapid eye movement sleep, uh, increased parasympathetic tone Uh, results in a drop in your blood pressure, a drop in the heart rate and systemic vascular resistance. Um, And then during uh, NREM as well, heart rate can rise 
with increased venous return during inspiration and will fall with decreased venous return during expiration. And obviously these are some of the features you see when your patients are asleep at night as their blood pressure falls and their heart rate drops off as well. Conversely, during REM sleep, um, there can be transient increases of up to 35% in the heart rate and blood pressure. So your patient's heart rate and blood pressure can vary quite markedly even when they are asleep as they go through those different phases of sleep if they're lucky enough to get some REM sleep. Esophageal motility is reduced. Gastrointestinal motility remains actually relatively unchanged, so their guts are still working away as per normal. Um, there's a de decrease in swallowing and saliva production. Gastric acid secretion uh, will peak during early sleep. So that's normal sleep. That's sleep for the healthy person who isn't unfortunately sitting in a critical care unit trying to sleep. So what happens to the critical care patient? Well, looking at this paper, there's several references to the fact that critically ill patients experience poor sleep quality um, and consistently report poor perceived sleep quality compared to home, which is probably no great surprise. A lot of this is probably stuff that you already think, well, that's why they don't sleep. But this paper highlights a lot of it as well. Um, and surveys of some of the survivors have shown that the sleep deprivation and the inability to sleep ranked among the top three major sources of anxiety and stress during the ICU stay. And I don't know about you, but if I can't sleep, I get stressed and anxious. Um, I'm a person who needs their sleep. Some of the detail they come out with from this study is quite interesting as well. Um, they use uh, polysomnographic studies um, and critically ill adult patients have very fragmented sleep compared to healthy adults and approximately 50% of their sleep occurs during daytime hours. Um, I mean, we know that, don't we, when we work in our intensive care units that a lot of our patients, um, the ones that aren't sedated, are spending a lot of their time sleeping as well. Um, and there's a demonstration that intensive care patients experience 41 on average, 41 sleep periods in 24 hours with each sleep averaging about 15 minutes. So they're doing lots of little micro sleeps really and they're not actually moving into the latter stages of sleep or indeed uh, rapid eye movement sleep. Um, so it does show that ICU patients commonly have broken light sleep with a lack of the restorative later stages of sleep. So they're sleeping badly. So why can't they sleep? What's the problem? Well, you probably won't be surprised to hear some of these things that cause the problems. But one of the ones that they highlight first and foremost is noise. High levels of noise are common in intensive cares. The Environmental Protection Agency recommends maximum hospital noise levels of 45 decibels during the day and 35 decibels at night. In the intensive care unit setting, peak daytime and nighttime noise levels routinely exceed 80 decibels. You can't imagine trying to sleep through that, can you? Um, it, it just must be absolutely horrendous. Um, so it's very, very noisy. It's a noisy environment. There's people talking. There's um, pages going off. There's telephones going off. There's televisions going on and off. Um, so noise is probably one of the biggest causes of um, sleep disruption. Next comes some of the patient care activities. Intensive care unit patients can experience 40 to 60 interruptions each night due to patient care activities and this is what's from this paper um, I find that an awful lot of interruptions you can imagine being interrupted 40 to 60 times per night trying to sleep how much sleep are you going to get if that happens so these interruptions can include patient assessments vital sign measurement equipment adjustment medication administration phlebotomy 
radiographs, wound care, transportation and bathing. Hopefully transportation, there's not too much of that going on overnight. And bathing, I haven't worked in a unit now that wash patients in the middle of the night for a long time and I hope there aren't too many of them that are doing it now because these patients need to sleep, they don't need to be washed in the middle of the night. Even the sedated patients, if they're lightly sedated, which they should be, we shouldn't be washing them in the middle of the night, surely. The next factor is light. Um, the light levels will disrupt a patient's sleep. The light levels are often too high to, for those patients to sleep. And the melatonin secretion in ICU patients is commonly known to be su suppressed, presumably because some of these light levels, because we've got lights going on and off in the units all the time. Um, I do try and encourage nurses to switch the lights off and I do definitely try and discourage them from keeping those lights on throughout the night, um, even when a patient is very, very sick. Because in my unit, um, we don't have closed bays. Um, our patients are all in one open ITU. So one light going on is going to spread throughout to everybody else. So that makes it difficult for the patient to sleep as well. Obviously, mechanical ventilation is going to play a part in sleep disruption. Um, you know, many of our patients are mechanically ventilated but not sedated because they're being weaned off perhaps the ventilator. And the aspects of ventilation that contribute to sleep fragmentation includes things like increased ventilatory effort, abnormal gas exchange and patient ventilator desynchrony. You know what it's like when we see the patient and the ventilator aren't quite working together. They might have been comfortable with the endotracheal tube, the ventilator alarms might be going off. Um, there might be frequent suctioning, the patient might be being repositioned and frequent assessments of that ventilation as well. And these are the other things that are going to wake up a patient on a ventilator. And then, of course, some of the drugs that we use in intensive care will cause the patient some problems. And sedation is probably one of the biggest um, factors here. Um, so despite being sedatives, anxiolytics and having analgesic properties, um, benzodiazepines and opiates are potentially disruptive to sleep. Opiates such as fentanyl and morphine promote sleep onset in healthy adults but inhibit REM and suppress the latter stages of sleep as well, those ones that will uh, are the restorative stages. So not great um, and, and propofol has been associated with suppressed um, later stages of sleep in human studies as well. So those kinds of drugs are going to stop you getting the good sleep. You may get some sleep but you won't necessarily get the good sleep that you need. Now the paper then does go on to talk about some of the physical consequences of a lack of sleep but I wanted to focus more on the psychological consequences of sleep deprivation in the critically ill patient and one of the first ones that they talk about is delirium and delirium is independently associated with patient mortality, increased cost and length of stay and long-term cognitive impairment and delirium is something we're all trying to get off on top of in the intensive care unit and whether or not sleep deprivation actually directly contributes to ICU delirium has not actually been investigated, but they do share a number of important mechanisms, risk factors and symptoms, um, circadian rhythm for one, and sedating me uh, medications such as benzodiazepines and opiates also contribute to both delirium and sleep disruption. So the fact that these overlap might mean that um, they delirium and um, sleep deprivation go hand in hand. There's also going to be some possibly psychiatric disturbances as a consequence of a lack of sleep. And post-traumatic stress disorder is one that comes up here and I hear more and more about this. And um, a review of 12 studies of ICU-associated post-traumatic stress disorder confirmed that 
between 10 to 39% of ICU survivors suffered from clinically significant post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms during their first year after ICU. Prevalence of ICU-related post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms is up to 45% at ICU discharge and 24% at eight years after ICU discharge. So it's a big problem, and it's a big problem for a long time. Can you imagine eight years after your intensive care stay and you're still getting symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder? Depression is also something that follows critical illness and this can be associated with impaired quality of life and delay in returning to work. And a systematic review of 14 studies of post-ICU depression revealed clinically significant depression in 28% of patients within the first year of ICU discharge. And if you're unlucky enough to suffer from ARDS, in those survivors, the prevalence of depression was as high as 46% at one year and 23% at two years after ICU discharge. So there's a big impact there. Can we associate that between sleep quality and um, all these factors? Well, possibly yes, because there's been multiple studies in the past that can associate sleep quality and qu- uh, sleep quantity and quality on mood. Um, and many studies have demonstrated depressive symptoms and increased levels of fatigue, anxiety, and stress in healthy participants undergoing total or partial sleep restriction. So, add on top the illness that you have then surely the deprivation of sleep is going to um, increase a lot of these symptoms of fatigue, anxiety and stress as well. And then finally, one of the other factors that they um, talk about is cognitive dysfunction. And there's been lots of investigations which have described a variety of short and long term neurocognitive deficits following critical illness, which include impairment of memory, attention, concentration, language, mental processing speed, visuospatial abilities and executive function, i.e. decision making, organisation and planning. In one study, 55 survivors of ARDS um, had their neurocognitive function examined and at hospital discharge 100% of these patients exhibited some level of cognitive impairment at hospital discharge. Bear in mind that this is possibly some time after they've left the intensive care unit so 100% of them had some kind of impairment. A year later 78% had impaired memory, attention and or concentration. 48% had decreased processing speed and 30% had global cognitive decline compared to population norms. Now the paper here doesn't tell, um, it doesn't go into details as to how old these patients were and I suspect that obviously a lot of them were an elderly population and may have been at risk of this anyway. But even if not, um, it's it's a big number. It's a, a lot of people who are suffering a lot of long-term problems as a consequence of their illness. We can't necessarily relate it all to the sleep deprivation, but there have been a lot of um, studies which have detailed a myriad of neurocognitive impairments following short-term, long-term and partial sleep deprivation, which include inattention, short-term memory loss, decreased reaction time and altered executive function. And if we're stopping these patients from sleeping particularly well, or we're not providing them with an environment in which they can sleep and get proper sleep, then we are contributing to their long-term disability. And I just want to sum up this podcast by just using one of their summaries, really. And they say that given that the consequences of post-ICU neurocognitive dysfunction pose a significant burden to ICU survivors who experience challenges with daily functioning, social isolation and difficulties returning to work, 
further investigation of the role of improving sleep in the ICU is a novel potential intervention. And it is, and I think it's something we need to explore further, and I'm hoping in, in future podcasts I'm going to be talking about, okay, how do we help promote sleep in the ICU? I've posted this as a um, post on my website as well, criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, Why Won't Our Patients Sleep, which just summarises some of the things I've spoken about here. So feel free to go to my website um, and add any comments if you want to. If you want to get in touch with me, you know how to do that by now, I hope. If not, there's a little uh, jingle at the end of this that tells you how to do that. Stay well. It's nice to speak to you. Important subjects. I hope this has helped some of your understanding and I hope it's going to help us all try and help these patients get more sleep, more rest and help their long-term quality of life. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk Tweet us at ccpractitioner Find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. <laughs>